0: Welcome to Still Unbelievable, a podcast by Reason Press, where we examine religious claims, especially those made by Christians, and we regularly respond to items that are featured on the podcast, Unbelievable. We embrace dialogue, but as sceptical former believers, we will also criticise unfounded claims and unsupported beliefs. Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Still Unbelievable with your regular chaps at the wheel, Andrew and Matthew. Say hello to uh, everybody, Andrew. Hello, everyone. Excellent. And that is a hello from me. And my big news of the week is, for those of you who are UK bound, is I'm out of furlough the end of today. I'm back at the grindstone doing the stuff that pays my salary from tomorrow morning, which is Quite bizarre. It means that the 200 hours I've spent on Assassin's Creed over the last three months have not been wasted. So, amen to that. Right now, so uh, with that out of the way, our guest today I invited onto the show. We've only literally touched base in in the last week because he posted an interesting uh, comment on the Unbelievable Facebook page following a recent episode of Unbelievable about a study that uh, and report that he's been writing on why people leave the Christian faith. And Andrew and I, having a little bit of experience in that matter, thought this is somebody that we should talk to. So welcome on board, Joel. It is a genuine pleasure to have you on, and thank you for being so keen to come and talk to us.
1: It's a pleasure to be here. I enjoy talking about my research. So.
0: And tell us about your research. What prompted you to write this article? and uh, we'll we'll go into some of the details of what you've written
1: well okay so I do enjoy talking about my background so if I can go into that a bit I find it quite amusing how I got to this point I uh, I'm an artist at heart I I really enjoy being creative and so as I'm going off to college this is kind of what I want to do but my parents wanted me to have a job so <laughs> they insisted I go into a field that would get me a a career and uh they pushed me towards special education for various reasons. So I go into that as my undergrad and through a series of misadventures, I end up getting a degree in psychology that I didn't want. Um, So after having gotten that degree in psychology, I got the only job I could uh, with an undergrad in psychology, which was working with abused children. And I don't Mm -hmm. mean to make that humorous. That was Mm -hmm. a period of my life when I got to see some unpleasant things but I felt I made a difference. I eventually did get a master's degree in special education after which I went into a job working with students with severe behavioral problems, and these are teenagers. So, And then after that, I began to pursue my, my academic career towards a PhD in behavior analysis, which is where I stand now. So how did I get to, around to doing the research that I'm currently doing? Well, in about, I want to say 2012, I took up a, a, job, a position as a freelance writer for an um, online publication called The Examiner, which doesn't exist anymore. So, um, But the their philosophy on doing news was to hire nothing but freelance writers and then give every one of their writers a different beat, if you will. Sure. So my, my beat was in... Uh, Christianity, specifically Christian apologetics. And so I they didn't give me assignments. I had to come up with my own news. And at one point, I uh, decided, why not do a week of biographies on uh, people who were atheists and then converted to Christianity? Uh, so I did that, and it was meant to be in a journal pieces, uh, and it turned out to be the most popular thing I'd ever written. Uh, And I got quite a bit of response, but one of the responses I got from atheists was, why don't you do a series on Christians that became atheists? Well, the psychologist in me was looking at these biographies as I was doing them and noticing trends and patterns, and so I inadvertently did a case study on what causes an atheist to become a Christian, and it fascinated me, and I was actually interested in finding out what happens when a Christian becomes an atheist. So I began to work on that uh, very recently, about two or three years ago, I began to collect the biographies for that. And it became much more apparent that the the patterns were persistent and predictable in those cases, much more than when atheists became Christians. So I began to make this my life's work, if you will. And I began to pick up the literature and academics. And I've done quite a bit of research at this point, And I uh, consider myself an expert on the topic at this point.
0: And uh, just for clarification, because I know this is a distinction that gets discussed quite a lot when atheists and Christians meet, when you're saying the word atheist in this context, what specifically do you mean?
1: Well, of course, that's the uh, question, isn't it? Um, For the purposes of my study, I've been taking the word of the individual who, who is giving their autobiography or biography uh, so my question is how do you go from identifying taking on the label of Christian and identifying or taking on the label of atheist? So I let the individual who is giving the testimony define what they mean by atheist because if I restricted my research to only people who you know professed a particular definition of atheism, I probably wouldn't get any research done at all
0: okay no that's a fair comment, and thank you for that answer. Andrew, you had so. something.
1: Well,
2: maybe. I wonder if in the answers in the research, so we're going to get much deeper into your research in a minute, and I like the way it's laid out, but you said that there are some predictable patterns, some things that you see uh, that sort of helped you develop a model. Uh, Again, we're going to get into that. uh, Helped you develop a model of, of deconversion right? And, and so that's coming up in a couple of minutes as the show progresses. But I wonder if in developing this model, one of the repeating patterns was how the atheists that you came across in uh, writing and, and uh, you know, whatever whatever sources you used, I wonder if there was a Uh, a common definition of atheism or some common definitions of atheism among the people uh, that are in the body of your research.
1: So the, the definition of atheism that stands most prominently is that which is opposite of Christian. So this is a person who used to be a Christian. They no longer believe in Christianity. They have particular objections to Christianity. And so they adopt the label of atheist as a- opposed to Christian, as opposed to what they believed prior. Mm. So, you know, the way they would define atheism might be the lack of belief, or it might be the belief that there is no God. But what stands out is that they are distinctly against Christianity. So atheism is a reactionary term in this sense.
2: So I appreciate the qualification. I don't have any pushback there. Um, I, am, uh, I am one of those atheists um, who is not entirely hostile uh, to Christianity. Uh, and, and I'm also one of those uh, weak atheists who would say, I am not saying that there is no God. I am not convinced that any God yet presented to me meets the burden of proof for its own existence. So that's my view on atheism. And it looks like I might be in the minority. So, so, that's, a, so that's interesting. Uh, well, it's, it's, it's an interesting place to be.
1: Clarify something that I, interests me in my research is that mm. initially the individuals I'm studying, they don't reject the idea of God so much as they reject the church. You know, the thing that mm. drives them out the thing that really precipitates this change is the church in which they Mm -hmm. are uh, currently members. Um, Mm -hmm. And frequently, when they raise objections, they raise uh, objections specific to their particular religious background. So -hmm. again, I consider it reactionary. They're reacting against something they have objections to that they no longer believe. And so I doubt that they sat and, you know... Thought through the philosophical definitions as they took on that identity, most sure. likely they were thinking through their particular objections and their experience.
2: Sure, I, I completely accept that. I wonder, and this is this will be a topic for probably a good bit later in the show. But Matthew asked it of me in the run-up. I wonder if, in the midst of your research, there is a component of people leaving Christianity because of some harm that that they either experienced or perceived that they experienced and, and that drove them away versus something more academic, like, um, uh, you know, like not being able to accept the resurrection as a fact or something like that. So I wonder, uh, you know, maybe we can get into that too uh, as the show progresses.
0: Sure. I can speak to that. Cool. Uh, Yeah. I'd like to stick on definitions for a minute as well, because there was something else in the introduction in your article where you draw a distinction between two words that me and quite a few other people who are former Christians use interchangeably, and that is deconstruction and deconversion. Can you um, talk about why you've made some kind of differentiation between those two words and how they're used?
1: Well, as a researcher, I have to use terms in a technical sense. And so my Experience in uh, interacting with the material is that deconstruction is almost used in a pop sense. It's a term that is kind of a popular shorthand for uh, what happened. The thing is that uh, deconversion is the end result of a process versus deconstruction as being the process. So it would be similar to the difference between saying uh, I calculated a math problem or I solved a math problem. You can certainly calculate a math problem without solving it, but you can't solve it without calculating it
0: okay I'll get you in. and thank you for that. I never thought about those two words in in that context, and I think it makes sense with the way you've laid out there i'm I'm a lazy bugger, so I'll probably continue using them both interchangeably to move, to use exactly the same mean exactly the same thing um but no i I think it's good that you've clarified two processes, or rather, clarified between a process and a result there, and I think that's actually quite a, quite a helpful thing. So certainly for the duration of this recording, I shall try to stick to that. Feel free to correct me if I, if I use one one wrong, but I think certainly for the context of, of your study, I think that's a useful distinction to make. Well, um, you can
1: use them however you like, but as a researcher, I have to be very specific about the technical definition of words that i use so for instance if i were to say that somebody was very cordial that doesn't tell me anything about their behaviors that's just a general uh you know a generalization with, in which many behaviors could become a category um does it mean that they hold the door for women when they walk through maybe you know that would fall under that definition but cordial is not a technical word so it doesn't tell me much about the behavior
0: okay yes true um and I didn't say this right at the beginning so I'll throw this in right right now this is more than just an aside uh, I welcome this kind of study um when Andrew and I were discussing it uh, off air before you came on and there are a couple of points that we made about it that we'd like to see um, I either improved or fleshed out or bits that were missing that's not because we disagree with this kind of uh, project, we absolutely want to endorse and support this kind of project because I think the information that it it gives is will be useful to everybody Christians and atheists alike and I think it will be useful in uh, making better quality conversations uh, across that barrier so any kind of, so this is more for the benefit of listeners than anybody else any kind of uh, Critique or criticism that we might give for this is all in the context of, of down the line. This is going to be a better report for it, and I certainly look forward to talking to you again at some point in the future when this is this is a, a fuller fledged um, more meaty uh, document with uh, more useful information on it. Because I think more useful information is great and, and good for everybody. And um, so, with with that, with that said, you. Mention later on some models of deconversion. So, do you want to set out for our listeners the kind of, the models of deconversion that you've you found and, and what they mean?
1: Well, the model of deconversion that comes to mind that's not my own would be the Perez Valeris model, which uh, essentially states that a person is restricted in some sense to a religious belief, and then they contact secular beliefs. And, you know, the contact between religious belief and secular belief is what causes the deconversion. So, and they lay out the model in more detail than I would be able to do in this conversation, but that's essentially their model, that deconversion is the end result of contact between religious beliefs and secular beliefs.
0: Sorry, can you just say the name of that model again for me? It's the
1: perez Valeris model, and I don't have the title of their study directly in front of me, so... I could look it up while we're talking.
0: No, I'm just typing it uh, <laughs> into the search engine of all knowledge and just to see if I can find something uh, of it. I, I found something about it, so um, I'll try and include a link to that in uh, in, in the show notes. And um, how did you come across that model as an aside? It was presumably in your searching on, on the subject. Well, this
1: model was commended to me by a... Uh, a fellow psychologist who was aware of my research and came across it um, in the academic da- databases. So I can't claim uh, the, the discovery of this one myself.
2: <laughs> okay. Well, so we're about to get into your model uh, is, is my sense. And when you were preparing the model that we're about to talk about, um, did the Perez-Valeris model, Figure importantly into the construction of the model of, of your model that we're that we're talking about today, or is it uh, is it a reimagining entirely? Um, so, you know, do we need the Perez Valeris model going forward to help us understand, or is your model pretty independent and we can talk about it largely without uh, without academic knowledge uh, of the Perez Valeris model?
1: Now, I had more or less developed my model when I came across the uh, perez Valeris, So I had to take that information from that study into account and see if it could be incorporated or consistent with my own model. And I think that it can. I I feel as if the perez Valeris model uh, contacts something very important in the process. I think it's an oversimplification, but it definitely works in to the model that I have uh, in one of the stages that we'll discuss.
2: Okay. So uh,
1: maybe we should be
2: uh, done with the appetizer for the (laughs) listeners. We should just get into the model. I I sort of hear the listener feedback right now. Um, Why are you beating around the bush? What are we doing? Um, (laughs) So so tell us about your model in regard to uh, deconversion
1: because
2: that's what we're here for.
1: Okay. So I'll lay out the five stages of the model without you know, trying to exhaustively cover every stage, uh, mm. we can do that going forward. But the model uh, consists of five stages. Uh, the first stage is the uh, setting conditions. Now, when I say setting conditions, we're we're talking about the kinds of things that form the background of a deconvert. You know, when we look at deconverts and we look at their religious backgrounds, are there any patterns or similarities? It turns out there are. And so the job is to categorize what are those similarities. Now, in uh, my field of behaviorism, a setting condition would be something uh, that we would call an establishing operation, meaning that this particular setting, this thing that happened to the person, makes the behavior, the target behavior, in this case, deconversion, more probable. So an establishing operation might be, say, uh, eating a bunch of salt it would make the behavior of drinking water more probable. Mm. Um, So it's basically a thing that establishes the behavior we're looking for, in this case, deconversion. Mm. So the setting conditions in this stage uh, deal with the religious backgrounds and the kinds of experiences the person has um, going forward towards the uh, deconversion. The second stage of the model is uh, stressors. Now, when I say stressors, I mean particular circumstances or uh, things that happen to the person that cause a stress, a buildup, uh, which primes them towards the deconversion event. Um, So to give examples of stressors, one of the most common ones would, of course be various doubts that come up. You know, they have questions about uh, various things in the religion, perhaps things in the Bible or, uh, you know, the problem of suffering, things like that. Now, in terms of stressors, these aren't the things that, you know, break out and cause them to deconvert. These are just building pressures, things that they try to push to the back of their mind, perhaps. Um, so as to avoid, you know, leaving the fold or the kind of criticisms that might come for entertaining those kinds of doubts, but it could be but other It just, things.
2: Create, just creates the cognitive dissonance that, um, that is sort of the foundation for other events.
1: Or it primes that, you know, Mm. it might not even be creating it. It might be something you push to the back of your mind and forget about, um, Mm. depending on the person or the situation. But yeah, I mean, it could start to create the cognitive dissonance as well. And then, you know, there's life circumstances. So for instance, in several of these cases, the person was going through marital problems or even divorce is a stressor. Of course it would be, Um, you know, and problems with the church. We see movement to a different church because of disagreements Uh, as a stressor, but probably the most common stressor is the Perez Valeris. (laughs) It's the coming in contact with uh, ideas that you had never considered before. So say you grew up in a restrictive religious background and then you go to college and now you're dealing with ideas that you never interacted with before because you were restricted and kind of isolated uh, within that Christian community. Um, so, and, you know, moving to a different location. So moving from the Bible belt to California, for instance, uh, that culture shock that comes with that, that would be a stressor. So again, these are all things that kind of prime the deep conversion process. The next stage of the model would be the trigger event. Now the trigger event is that thing, which occurs, which starts off the deconstruction process, right? So Um, You know, I mean, we've had a number of uh, high name Christians who have recently come out and, uh, you know, said they've deconverted. They're no longer believers. Uh, And this is something that's been happening pretty frequently nowadays. And so this person will come out and they'll say, you know, this thing happened to me and now I no longer believe. And the thing that happened to them is what I would call the trigger event. So we've got these stressors, and they're building up a certain kind of mental pressure uh, in the person. The trigger event would be kind of like the pin that pricks the balloon and allows the release of all that pressure, Uh, or it'd be the straw that breaks the camel's back. So basically, it's an event which gives them intellectual permission to start exploring these doubts that they've been kind of accumulating. And so after the trigger event, you have the deconstruction. Now, deconstruction can go in one of three ways. Either the person will try to rescue their Christianity. They don't want to deconvert. They're afraid of the, you know, the fact that they might no longer believe and what the uh, consequences of that will be. So in order to rescue their belief, uh, they, they might engage in, say, apologetics. Uh, they, and this is what I would call content rescue. In order to be a Christian, they have to believe that the earth is 6,000 years old and that, that the Bible has no contradictions in it and that Jesus rose physically from the grave. And so in order to defend that content, they have to find, you know, arguments that would support those specific beliefs. So that's content rescue. And people like that have generally come from a position where they've said that, you know, their Christianity is a house of cards. You pull away one of those cards, the whole thing collapses. And you'll find that in these stories where, you know, they start to consider that evolution is more probable than creation. And that just the fact that evolution has more probability will cause them to say, well, therefore, God doesn't exist, which is a big leap to take. Um, so the other uh, type of rescue would be belief rescue. In belief rescue, it's a lot it, – they're willing to compromise. It's a lot less difficult. They run into a problem, say, creationism uh, and evolution, so they'll just compromise and adopt a form of evolution. Um, they'll run into a problem of, say, information for the resurrection, so they'll go to a position that Jesus resurrected spiritually instead of bodily, or something like that. And this usually results in what I call leftward drift. So it's no secret that uh, you know the types of Christians that end up deconverting typically come. From what you would consider very conservative or right-wing backgrounds, and when you run into problems like, you know, what I just mentioned—the resurrection—was it bodily or spiritual? It wouldn't be too difficult to take a step to the left, theologically, and go with a spiritual resurrection, and you know, defeat that problem. Um, But then, of course, social issues are a big, big trigger event nowadays. So you, you come to the conclusion that the church is doing something wrong in the exclusion of LGBTQ. And so as a result, you take a step to the left, become affirming, and then it no longer becomes a problem. And so this leftward drift is something that we see uh, in practically every deconversion case I've ever looked at. Um, now the question is, are they drifting to the left to save their Christianity or is it a result of losing their Christianity? And I think it's a self-perpetuating process. You step to the left, you start to become more progressive in your views, you realize more problems with Christianity, you step to the left further and repeat the process until Christianity no longer becomes an option. So that's the deconstruction process. And then of course you end up deconverting and the consequences of deconverting are frequently very unpleasant. You have to take you have to an uh, identity crisis. Being a Christian was a central part of your identity, and now you have to somehow figure out who you are now that you're no longer a Christian. There's a loss of community. Yeah, you you sound like you're willing to jump in here. Oh, well,
2: I was only only in the sense that I was going to loudly agree um, with the idea that when you lose Christianity, uh, you lose uh, a whole framework. Under which you operated uh, or well let me just speak for myself and not for anyone else uh, I lost an entire framework uh, under which I operated and one that I didn't have to think about very much mm-hmm. right yeah. and and so you get it uh, in Sunday school and and uh, you know Sunday morning and Sunday night and Wednesday night and that was one of those you know every time the every time the door opened kind of things because uh, because because I was a conservative Christian to Mm-hmm. To uh, come alongside more of the model. Um, and so you do lose this entire ethical system that creates guardrails for you every day. Right. You don't mm-hmm. you don't have to think about, um, you know, do you steal from your neighbor? No, you don't. You're, you have a clear command not to. Right. Um mm-hmm. You, um, you don't cheat on your business deals. Maybe, maybe you don't consume alcohol, or maybe you do. I mean, that was sort of in the air. But there are all these things that you don't do because there's an ethical system that has been handed to you uh, on hold. Right? Mm-hmm. And the, the deconversion process does mean uh, if ethics are the thing that is, is important to you as a Christian, It does mean that you have to reconsider your entire ethical framework, and that is a big task. That's a big job. Uh, And if if you're the kind of person that was thinking about that sort of thing ahead of time, it would be somewhat easy to stay entrenched in Christianity just to not have to do that work, because it is a monumental task. Uh, so anyway, just coming alongside uh, what you said, it's a it's a big job.
1: Yes, it is, and th- this is what I call a deconversion crisis, and mm. it's worth an entire study itself. In fact, whole books have been ret- written about it, um, and eventually I'll get around to reading them because this is a very significant portion of the deconversion process. Mm.
0: Mm. There's something okay. I'd like to pick up from what you've just been. Laying out, uh, Joel, and I, it's not really the scope of this conversation. But because of what you've just laid out, I feel that we need to address it, even if it's only briefly. And for clarity, here in the UK, where where I am, the the, the public face of Christianity is quite different to what we from the UK see coming out over America. And this is the the right wing phrase that you you uttered. And there's so can I just be clear on what it is that you're not saying for what you've said? Because it's very possible for someone listening to this who have just come out and the last two minutes of conversation of what you've said has led them to think that the only true form of Christianity is the right-wing Christianity. And can I assume that that's not really what you're saying?
1: No, but that would be part of the setting conditions. I have, well, there is one yeah, I, I can talk about that later. Uh, but yeah, it's a fact that all of the cases that I've studied have come out of a right-wing setting with several categories, which I've outlined in the article I wrote, and we can talk about those if you'd like. But yeah, they they come out of you know what would commonly be called a fundamentalist church. I like to use the word modal typical, because fundamentalist comes with a lot of baggage that makes it an un- unhelpful term.
0: Okay. Now, I, I just wanted to to make that point because it was what was coming, what was thinking. I was thinking, was hang on a minute, the only way to stop yourself becoming not a Christian is by being a right wing Christian. And I really wanted just to get the point out that that isn't actually the message that you're giving, you're you're just laying out what is the, the most common roads out of Christianity that, that you have come across. So, to rewind to the more pertinent question around the steps that you're talking about and, and in the cases that you looked at, is there a typical time frame in which this process happened over, or does it vary greatly?
1: Well, it's interesting to me because my sense in, uh, you know, interacting with the material, and I, I followed more deconversions than just the ones that I researched because I listened to a great deal in terms of YouTube and podcasts and so forth, where, inter, uh, where deconverts give their story and unfortunately, I didn't take notes on most of those. I wish I had. But, you know, you get the sense that deconverts all come from college or, you know, shortly thereafter. Um, but many of the cases that I reviewed actually deconverted, you know, in their late 30s or 40s, which was a surprise to me because, you know, I assumed that it just happened in college. <laughs> mm. Um but yeah, as far as the process, if you if you talk about from the minute you start experiencing stressors, then that could be years. I mean, that could be, you know, decades. But if you're talking about you know from when the trigger event occurs to when you declare yourself an atheist, that's typically a pretty short period of time. Mm-hmm. Uh, probably less than a year in most cases.
2: As a matter of um, as a matter of resource, we have a. Um a fellow podcaster that we're friendly with. Um, uh, His name is David. He runs the Graceful Atheist podcast. And his show is entirely about deconversion. Every episode is interviewing someone who was once religious, who is no longer. And so if you're looking for more of that material, uh, the Graceful Atheist is a a good podcast. He keeps that going and he's done a good job with it. And they're all... um, uh, the, the timing is all uh, kept under an hour and, and sometimes much less. So if you if you want more of those kinds of self-reports, he's a good podcast to follow. I
0: Thank believe you. I'd already sent you a link uh, to that podcast. I think that was one of the things I sent to you in um, in our preliminary discussions. Yeah, um, you did. And you recommended a couple of good resources, and I appreciate that.
2: Oh, sorry, I missed it. Yeah. Uh, I
0: but... <laughs> Dave... <laughs> just to be clear i'm a fan of dave and his podcast and he is he's my go-to guy on on a lot of these uh things so um i i'll probably best i stop there because will end up this will end up as a gushing fan fest and we've got a serious <laughs> topic to discuss here but sure. hello dave i'm waving at you now
2: <laughs> so maybe maybe we can go back to the very first step uh in this model and talk about it in more detail because I I think there's some, I think there's some fascinating, well, I don't know if anybody else is going to find them interesting. I've, I've got some (laughs) questions that I, (laughs) I've got some questions that I'm fond of and we'll, we'll just see how the, how the listeners feel. Um, so let's go back to step one and Mm -hmm. walk us through it again one more time and let's get right into each step.
1: Okay. So the setting conditions, uh, indicate the kind of religious background a person has that ends up being a deconvert. I mean, you know, when I noticed that deconverts always tend to come from the same background, this seems significant to me. So I had to make note of the various conditions one sees in the backgrounds of people who eventually deconvert.
2: So when you did your research on setting conditions and, and those who deconvert, was this primarily an American study because it struck me up front that, um, and, and then Matthew brought up um, you know, the, 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 Euro, the uh, EU countries and, and how Europe treats Christianity, and uh, it seems that there are more atheists in Europe, if I remember my Pew Research numbers correctly, there there are more atheists in Europe in an environment
1: that is distinctly more liberal
2: um, than Christianity in the United States.
1: So uh, the American Atheist recently published a uh, survey that did. Uh, they titled Reality Check. And mm-hmm. in the survey they had um, polled uh, something over a thousand atheists within the United States. Um, and what you see in that poll is that the majority of those atheists were deconverts. They they ha- were once religious and then they came out of the religion. So when you're talking about deconversion, you find this idea of somebody who was religious and is now atheist occur in highly religious countries, less than more secular countries. Um, and so I went with, I, I approached the process initially like a journalist, which was a mistake, but I, I, uh, the atheists that I found and that I profiled were people who were, who tended to be high profile. And the reason I selected that was because I could multi source the resources. Rather sure. than listening to one, you know, 30 minute YouTube video about my deconversion experience, I could reference a person who had interviewed, who had written books, who had, you know, done their own YouTube channel or something like that, so that I can compare the sources and get a, a more rounded. Uh, and multi-sourced, you know, uh, idea of their deconversion process. So the people that I chose were big name deconverts. So um, say Bart Ehrman, for instance, or um, Richard Price, or uh, you know, the names there, I'm blanking (laughs) on the curve.
2: Look, there's, there's plenty. Um, I think Richard Carrier was a uh, a former Christian though I might be wrong about that
1: um, i don 't know about, he, he Sam was, America, but unfortunately he didn 't talk about it enough for me to find the resources profile
2: right sure and and i 'm not i mean it 's not necessary for you to go through every um, uh, through every person that you evaluated in order to do research because I think already the uh, just talking about the research in general it sounds uh, it sounds like you did a good job there. As a, as a researcher, <laughs> you know, if people want a marquee of prominent atheists who were former Christians, they can do that Google search on their own. Um,
0: yeah.
2: So um, I'm, I still am fascinated by if, if it is conservative. Um, let me let me go further than that. This might not fit into your research, but, you know, conservative Christianity isn't always an evil right? So uh, it, is, it is a specific type of, of very restrictive conservative Christianity that's, that people in the United States seem to be rebelling against. And we can talk more about that. But I'm still fascinated by the idea that, um, you know, people move left and move left, that sort of leftward-leaning salvation of Christianity. And, and so what I would expect to see um, is that in countries where Christianity is more liberal, I would expect to see a higher population of Christians rather than a lower population of Christians. And the European Union doesn't seem to fit that mold. They have a more liberal Christianity with a higher population of atheists.
1: So that's interesting because, um, you know. By the way, this, the this question... isn't
2: implicit criticism. I'm, I'm genuinely curious about your thoughts.
0: Can I, can I just jump in here, Andrew? I think the mistake you're making here is you're conflating people who are atheists with people who have deconverted i think the number you need to be looking at is those who have exited christianity rather than those who have never bought into christianity in the first place
2: yeah well i'm not sure Uh, so so that's that's an interesting thought but i'm not sure there so in a place where christianity is is more easily tolerated a a christianity that is less abrasive christianity that can be, be more easily embraced unfortunately i had to person. cut
0: out some of Joel's response to to Andrew in the following segment this so was because it seems to me that we would an irretrievable have a loss of audio uh, quality and in, it really in a country where those conditions control, are part of the no background. option
2: this is a more tolerable christianity a thing that more people can embrace they get the benefits of christianity so uh they get uh, a social group they get a sense of belonging they get an ethical system they get all of these things in one package and so I still think that I'm concerned about why it is where there's a why it is there's a a region in the world where there's a more acceptable Christianity that has a higher population of atheists because that is the that is the bit that we're discussing
1: Well, I think I can answer that question by going over one of the cases that I profiled. And this would be Ryan Bell, the Year Without God guy. So Ryan Bell came from a Seventh-day Adventist background, and uh, he was raised in sort of that background, and he schooled in that background, and he eventually became a pastor in that background. And so Seventh-day Adventists, for people who don't know, tend to be pretty stringent and restrictive in the types of rules that they hold for their congregation. And so Ryan Bell eventually moved from his first church to uh, pastor a pastor church in Pennsylvania, and he was surprised to discover that the people in that church, the women tend to wear makeup, and they, you know, people tended to smoke, and they did all of these things that Seventh-day Adventists weren't supposed to do. And so he was faced with the difficult decision of, do I enforce the Seventh-day Adventist rules, or do I become a little more relaxed in my standards, so, you know, so that these people don't have to, you know, be too, you know, rigid in their behavior. Uh, So he decided to relax without going into the details, is that he persisted in the ministry when the Seventh-day Adventists asked him to stop. He was very socially justice-minded, and he tended to preach more of the sort of love, grace, peace kind of gospel. So this was where he had ended at, and then the Adventists asked him to step down, and you know, in his mind, he was still a pastor. He was just a pastor without a church. And so he pursued those things which were important to him, which was the social justice type things. And when in doing so, he ended up uh, shoulder to shoulder with humanists. You know, most of the people he was working with were not Christians. They were people who were concerned about these and just happened not to believe in God. And so at some point, somebody asks him, well, what difference does God make? I mean, we are able to persist by the standard. We have good reasons to believe in these standards. Um, and everything we're doing is consistent with what you're doing. What difference does belief in God make? And so this struck him. And then he did his, his year without God thing. And he came to the conclusion that God isn't really necessary in order to abide by these moral standards and do these important things that I'm doing. And so God just became obsolete and in the type of behaviors he like to do. And so this might be somewhat what you're seeing in Europe is that the idea of God has become obsolete because you can persist in these kinds of values and standards under different conditions than religion. That does
2: bring some light to the question. I, I, think, um, I think maybe I need to uh, pursue that a little bit on my own. I, uh, but I do like the answer. I think, uh, I think there's something illuminating there. It is possible that with a more liberal theology, you would expect to see more atheists because, as you said in describing this model earlier, you step left and you step left and you step left. And sooner or later, the Christian project is something you don't need. And and so maybe it is natural that a very liberal Christianity goes hand in hand with a higher percentage of atheists. So So thank you. You're welcome.
0: I certainly identify my own story the the stepping left is is certainly true and that this is coming from somebody who lives in a country where you know a huge number of the Christian population of this country is already quite a long way to the left anyway Uh, so but yeah I I identify with that with that stepping left uh, bit um anyway Andrew you were going to say something else
2: Oh, no, I was just agreeing. I was uh, just active listening, uh, okay. which is why I should stay on mute more, right. <laughs> really. Uh, it seems to me that stressors happen all along, and I, th- I think we all agreed on that. You, know, you can have these stressors very early on, and they continue to build and continue to build and continue to build. Mm-hmm. And, and so then there's a, a trigger event, and so my query is about the interface between these stressor events and triggers okay, because it almost seems that with enough pressure almost anything could be the trigger event right so maybe it's a divorce like you mentioned earlier but it might also be um, the loss of a job or a problem with a with a child or the loss of a loved one it seems to me that a trigger event could be almost anything because really it's just another stressor. And so do you agree with that or have I misunderstood the interface between stressors and triggers?
1: Yeah, so stressors have an accumulative effect. And uh, at some point, the culmination of the stressors results in a trigger. Whether or not the trigger is some kind of something special, some kind of special stressor, would be difficult for me to say. So it's entirely possible that, yeah, it's just another stressor. It's the straw that broke the camel's back.
2: In your research, when you, well, this might be hard to pull out of the research because I think probably if I were to report trigger events in my own life, I wouldn't be as clear about the stressors that led up to it. So I'm wondering uh, if in your research, do people report the same kinds of stressors as problems for Christianity as the trigger event? Or are there problems for Christianity, things that they can easily push to the background and the trigger event is something very different from the stressors that that they report?
1: So that's an interesting question because as part of the research that I did, I went through and I gathered together Uh, all of the objections that I had run into. um, Mm. And then I mapped charted them out in terms of frequency. So I can briefly read down that uh, list of the specific objections that I saw. Mm. So would you like to hear that? that? Yes. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. yeah, Go for it. Yeah.
2: That was me agreeing. Yes.
1: Okay. (laughs) So the, uh, the list goes the church's connection with right-wing politics, the racial disparity within the church, creationism, the ineffectiveness of prayer, the concept of inerrancy of scripture, God's having wrathful or anger towards sin, historical changes in the Christian doctrine. So, for instance, you know the doctrine has changed through the church fathers and various theologians over the years. Um, science versus the church So the idea that you know Christianity is out of step with science uh, Evidence for the resurrection Bad ethics in the Bible So these would be things like God commanding genocide, for instance uh, Supporting Christian, slavery
2: in the Old Testament, all of that category
1: Exactly Christian hypocrisy Sexual ethics in the church Marital problems and marital problems is a trigger, so I don't know if that would be connected specifically to religion, except for the, you know, idea that God didn't stop this problem. Hmm. Uh, the failure of miracles, the concept of hell, the concept of sin. Uh, now, this is one of the bigger—I put it under empiricism, but basically it's this idea that there is no evidence. You know, you look at it, there's no evidence to support it. Hmm. Uh, The historical inaccuracies of Scripture, so this is the inaccuracies of Scripture that relate specifically to history that we know. Mm -hmm. Um, The concept of suffering and evil, Uh, good people that exist outside of the church, you know, if it's the only way, then, you know, how come we can see people who are exactly as good as I am, if not better, that aren't Christian? Or the problem of other religions, you know, you adopt the religion in the area that you're born, or everybody is convinced of their religion and what makes me the right one, that kind of thing. Mm. So on my list, the highest number of errors go to the concept of inerrancy of scripture.
2: Interesting. So first, every one of those was at some point a stressor for me. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I, I experienced the fact I'm a... My blood pressure is probably 180 right now. I'm just, I'm stressed <laughs> just hearing the list. Uh, no. Yeah, so, I could explain so,
1: that to you, but go on.
2: <laughs> so uh, kidding aside, um, those all seem to me like under the right circumstances, any one of them could be that, that final trigger event You know, given the given the right emotional context, the right uh, values in in regard to personal relationships, all of that sort of thing, any one of those could um, could be a trigger event. Though I think some are much more likely than others. And that's probably what your research shows, too, is that some of these things are a bigger problem uh, than others. But thank you for reading the list, because uh, uh, that was pretty exhaustive, I think. I'll tell you for your purposes that one of my problems with Christianity actually is not on that list. So, uh, or, or at least I wouldn't have phrased it um, like any of those. It seems to me that there's a, a problem um, with the claims of the Bible not uh, relating, uh, sorry, it seems to me that the, uh, that the acts of the Bible, Uh, miracles like turning water to wine or resurrecting someone or uh, feeding 5,000 or the 4,000 or walking on water, all of those kinds of things. Mm -hmm. It seems to me that all of those acts don't add up to the central claims that the Bible wants you to believe. Uh, Mm -hmm. And by Bible, obviously the book itself doesn't want you to believe anything, so I'm really talking about its supporters, right? Mm -hmm. Or, Or a God, if there was one out there. And here are the things that, that are trying to be claimed on the back of, of those events like turning water to wine or walking on the water, or resurrection or whatever that is that there's a God that can live forever that he uh, has a main, that he maintains an eternal torture chamber for those who, uh, you know, for those who are condemned. If you think he does, it's possible to be an, an annihilationist um, that this God has the perfect capacity to judge right and wrong. Um, that he cares to judge right and wrong, that he has the ability to speak into people's heads and deliver his message or to prophesy in the future, all those kinds of things. Those are the sorts of central claims that uh, are not actually addressed by things like turning water into wine. And so for me, there was real cognitive dissonance, uh, uh, moments of... um, Maybe those maybe it wasn't the trigger event, but big stressors because it's it's almost the kind of comparison the the sort of mistaken comparison that you hear people make today when they say, "Well, we can put people on the moon
0: mm-hmm.
2: but we can't cure cancer mm-hmm. and that is so obviously that's a, a faulty kind of comparison the idea that we Uh, that we can put people on the moon has nothing to do with curing cancer. Mm -hmm. And in like manner, the ability to turn water to wine may say nothing about the capacity to live forever or any of the other central things that you have to believe in order to accept the eternal life story. Mm -hmm. So anyway, I I don't know if uh, if you've heard that objection. It is actually a significant objection of mine. And I uh, don't know if it fits into your research, but you get it for free, whether you wanted it or not. So. <laughs> you. Yeah, I appreciate that. <laughs> uh,
1: so, Always so about collecting data, so... Yeah, well,
2: I'll be interested to see if that uh, if that turns up in your uh, in your final product. I suspect not.
1: But uh, so, well, if you could sum that up in a in a sentence or phrase, that would be helpful.
0: <laughs> this is oh, Andrew you're talking to. <laughs> that was my summation,
1: man. You
2: should you should hear the full uh, you should hear the full rant. <laughs> so, uh, so sorry, I, I hear
1: you saying the consistency of the nature of God between the acts of God
2: yeah that is really well done actually
1: um
2: yes that uh that is that is a great summation uh and it may it may appear that way uh, already in you know in the other things that you listed, but I was sort of listening for it and i I didn't hear it you know it didn't it didn't ring for me so so anyway um so that gets us through trigger events
0: mm-hmm.
2: and uh so then we're into deconstruction, is that right? Actually, I'd oh, like yeah. to ask
0: a oh. question on triggers and uh, stresses. In your research, what what is there a variety of relationships between stresses and, and triggers? I'm imagining that there's probably a bit of a gray area between. Uh, emerging in from a stressor to a trigger rather than it being an absolute demarcation. It, it's probably more of a, a blurred progression from, from stressors into triggers. And I can imagine a scenario where people might have multiple triggers and eventually there's one that sets it all off. Does, is, does that kind of ring right for you or are you being much more narrow on your definition of trigger?
1: Well, I think that uh, there's much to say about the cumulative effect and where you are in your life when the trigger occurs, because I think this may be where the Perez Valeries model comes in, because when you are in an environment where deconversion becomes a possibility, as opposed to say, being in strictly within the church environment, uh, when you emerge into an environment that would support or make it more comfortable to deconvert, it suddenly becomes a possibility and it makes it easier to uh, take one of these stressors and, take it a little more seriously instead of pushing it to the back of your mind, you know, actually entertain it and the various uh, consequences that come with it. And so this is why you see a lot of people doing this in college uh, or in a more secular environment, because they're no longer in a church environment where they're being pressured to, you know, hide these things in the back of their mind and or whatnot.
0: Okay, thanks
1: problem so one of the more so, recent um de-converts that of course featured on the uh, unbelievable show uh was the gentleman from hawk nelson uh whose name is escaping me right now john Steingart. Uh, thank you anyway uh his stressors involve no longer being attached to a specific church and then touring and going to various churches at various times and so he's entering this uh condition wherein he is no longer being supported by a community or an environment. You know, he is more or less on his own at this point. And so it makes it more probable, based on the environment, for him to consider these stressors, uh, to take them a little more seriously uh, because of the environmental situation that he's in. And so this behavior of deconversion becomes more probable based on the environment in which he is currently sitting.
2: I thought his story was fascinating um, for exactly for exactly that reason because his self report is that that his stressor was a lack of stressors in, uh, in essence. So he no longer uh, in in his in his own writing uh, he no longer had to believe. It, so being part of Hawk Nelson, being the being the front man for the band, um, there were certain expectations that were. Uh, placed on him, he's a he's a public figure, and he's expected to uh, conform to you know, whatever broad notion of Christianity was acceptable for him as a uh, as a public figure and leader of, of the band. And he, in his in his deconversion, when he stopped when he stopped being the front man for the band, that was the thing that allowed him to deconvert. So his stressor was a de-stressor. He no longer had to believe those things. And that's when it uh, uh you know, that's that was the uh that was the moment where he deconverted, or at least the period in which he deconverted uh, was was when he no longer had to believe. He wasn't being wasn't being forced to uh to carry the load of the band and, and conform in any particular way.
1: So I thought All right, that was. If a, you remember- if you remember oh, how i described if you remember how I described the trigger, I said it was that event which gave you intellectual permission to then explore these doubts, and so the fact that he no longer had to assume this role of leadership of gave him the intellectual permission to actually consider the doubts that he would not have had before when he was a leader
2: I want to pursue that there's um there's something in there um, so the the sort of permission to uh, to pursue avenues of thought that that aren't uh, that aren't entirely christian so you've listed some earlier things like evolution and its conflict with uh, with a young earth or uh, you listed several others i'm sorry i can't recall them i can't recall them all but there's there is a it, it does seem that one of the problems with Christianity is a, is a failure to embrace uh, openness as a, uh, as a means to um, develop your own personality. And what that brings to mind for me is identity foreclosure. And I wonder if in your research um, you have seen a problem with Christianity and identity foreclosure And uh, and how that ultimately figures into people uh, working their way out of identity foreclosure. If you think it is a problem that you've seen in your research.
1: So this isn't a term that I'm familiar with. Um,
2: Okay, so there's a. uh, I'll tell you what I'll do. I'll put a pin in this and I will send you the research on identity foreclosure and we will ask you back uh, uh, for. Uh, a discussion on identity foreclosure when your project is finished. And and I'll send you the research and we can talk about it offline. And we'll just leave it as a as a note for the future.
0: Okay. On the subject of John Steingard and um, the band, whose, whose name is uh, Hawk Nelson, that's it. Presumably there's three other, or however many it is, band members who have been through... The, the same touring regime that, that John has gone through who remained to be Christians. So there's clearly something different that happened to John that, uh, or or something triggered John which didn't trigger them, if you see what I'm saying.
1: Yeah, I see what you're saying. Of course, I would have to know a little bit more about their autobiography, which I haven't heard. I've only heard his. <laughs> yeah. Now, there were two things that stood out as stressors to me. For, oh, yeah, okay. So his stressors involved... Uh, the touring, which we mentioned, and, you know this is not the first musician that i've seen or that I've profiled for deconversion, and this is sort of a universal thing among christian uh musicians that they tour they don't have a regular church uh community and community is one of the most is one of the driving uh reinforcers for people who are Christian, you know this idea that you have a specific community that accepts you and that you're part of, and this, you know, is one of the things that makes religion so attractive. Um, so this loss of community that uh, touring musicians go through, and this fact of constantly having to sit in new churches with new approaches and ideas can cause... Uh, the the technical term for this is tr- tinkering, and tinkering is a term that's used in cognitive psychology, Uh, wherein a person encounters a new idea with which they're not familiar. And now they have to adjust their own ideas to incorporate this new idea. So, you know, you could reject it or you could kind of modify your existing beliefs and ideas to incorporate this new thing that you've run across. And when you're constantly tinkering, you know, when you're going to church after church and seeing new approaches, this itself could be a stressor. So you know obviously again the other band members went through that now he in his writings which i've read some of he mentioned that there was a you know a big pressure to perform when he was a younger person in a church and so this is one of the uh, features that i've mapped for a modal typical church you know is that there's this performance control the community controls your performance because each individual within the community holds the standard that the entire community holds for performance and so each individual reinforces that behavior in each other individual in the community. And when that um, behavior is not being observed, it's punished through things like uh, shame and, and guilt.
0: Okay, from from the uh, the wider community and the expectations on him, presumably.
1: Correct. So he said that this was a problem about his church growing up was that you know there was this this standard that everyone was expected to live by. And that was a difficult thing for him to deal with.
0: Yeah. Interesting. You say that I'm, I'm having some memories with you saying exactly saying that of similar sort of things in in my own childhood. Um, You, you don't know most of our listeners, I think uh, are already familiar with some of my backstory. I grew up in a missionary environment in, in central Africa. So yeah, the expectation of how you behave uh, as a child is um, yeah that that's something that I identify with. So we're now on to the last bit, the the deconversion. Do you want to um, fill us out a little bit on that?
1: Well, obviously, deconversion is the end result, and you know the model could stop there and you know and so say it's reached its final conclusion. But the deconversion itself has some features which are you know of interest. There's a uh, psychologist, uh, H. Gurin who describes religious conversion, which is another one of my studies, as a conversion career, meaning that conversion doesn't just stop at the point where you declare yourself a Christian. You know, it defines what you do going forward. And so the same might be said to be true of an atheist who is deconverted. The deconversion doesn't stop at the moment they declare themselves an atheist. This process that they began at deconstruction continues thereafter and affects their life going forward. Now I haven't done the kind of longitudinal studies that, that I would need to, you know, clearly describe what the deconversion career would look like, but I have, you know, listened to enough and read enough to know that it does affect a person and typically it affects a person negatively. Um so, you know, there's this idea the people who i read deconversion stories of are the people who were most active in their religion so the idea of becoming irreligious has much bigger con- um consequences for them than it would for a person who you know was filling the pew on sunday and attending easter service and otherwise you know running around doing whatever it is they do with their life you know larping and Playing video games and whatnot. <laughs> um, so, yeah, uh, the people who are most active are the people who are, are most likely to deconvert because this Christianity is a big part of their identity. It's not peripheral. It's not uh, compartmentalized. It's who they are. And now they have to redefine themselves as something else. And how do you do that? You know, that that's a big question. Uh, more than that, you lose a that supportive community, that part which is very important to human beings as a species that they have a supportive mm-hmm. community with which with whom they can relate, and you lose that and then possibly worst of all, that community you know once they learn that you are no longer one of them, they now have to go through a process of redefining who you are in their mind, mm. so you have the two identity crises you have your personal identity crisis, and then you have the community identity crisis
2: by the way, as an aside. Um, I did catch the reference to larping. I don't even know if uh if a lot of our listeners that's live action role playing and uh, <laughs> and so I caught it. I think that's great and um, do you um, uh, do you go to the comments? <laughs> I just just gotta know. Look, I mean, I mean, look, you've (laughs) it into existence. This is not my fault. This this rabbit trail is entirely a result of you mentioning LARPing. Hang on a minute.
0: uh, Hang on (laughs) a minute. Do we do we need uh, a warning here to our listeners about risk of mental images that are going to scar the rest of the episode?
2: uh, It depends on which cons you go to, really. So, do you larp? That's cool. If you do, I think that's awesome.
1: <laughs> I have never myself partaken. You know, uh, I, I've ri- I've ridden my geek hood up to the line, but I've never stepped across.
2: I I, I got you. So so look, I'll uh, I'll get rid of the aside. I just thought it was cool, and I wanted you to know I did catch uh, I, I did catch the mention to to larping, and that's uh, that's awesome. So Matthew, back to you for a relevant part of the show.
0: <laughs> <laughs> i've still got my mental images of um people running around forests and kilts but um yeah oh well it, that yeah, would be that, the best know. possible
2: <laughs> <laughs> so yeah. so we were on deconversion. Um,
0: yes that's right we are and um i think this is the point to mention a, a previous episode that we've done with the the fabulous clint haycock of the the mind mm-hmm. shift and we talked to him and we had him on talking about what happens to people after they stop going to church. So this is the tail end of the process that you've been describing to us, Joel. And so so what Clint was talking to us about was the, the deconversion and the conclusion and the stages that people go through, which are not too dissimilar to the grief stages yeah, in Go through that. So what I probably need to do after we've recorded this is compare – some of the the notes that we've got from this with the notes that we've got from from Clint and see if there's a way that the the two stories um, marry up and maybe there's a joint conversation we can go to oh I said that on air (laughs) sorry Clint I haven't just cornered you have I Um, anyway maybe we'll have a conversation offline and we'll 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 see what happens uh, uh, about that. Um, If I may
1: address that point very briefly. Yes go for it. So one of the things that's interesting in the difference between conversion and deconversion is that deconversion is a very personal process. You know, in conversion, typically you encounter a person that's part of the religion that you eventually convert to, and then you encounter the community and there's this uh, community aspect to eventually joining that particular religion. Uh, Unfortunately, deconversion isn't like that. I've run into possibly one account where the person who deconverted did so under the auspices of a relationship with another atheist. Typically, those relationships are formed during the deconstruction process or after deconversion as the person becomes uncomfortable with their Christian community and they seek out a community with, which, with whom they can be comfortable. But here's the problem with that. The problem is when you walk into a room full of atheists, the reason that you walked into that room is that you are now yourself an atheist you have nothing in common with this people except for the fact that you don't believe or that you lack belief. And so in order to you know sit at a table and strike up a conversation with these people, the only thing you have to talk about that you know that they're interested in is atheism. And by rote, you, you also have to talk about religion because that's kind of where atheism is pointed in some way. And so then to develop these relationships and to develop a community you have to kind of foster this conversation about religion and the evils thereof. And so it, there is some unhealthiness to forming an atheist community that only focuses on your problems with religion, and it can result in an unhealthy mindset if it's not advanced beyond that,
0: that point. I would uh, completely agree with that. And I consider myself fortunate in that I had – or. Already, some community that was a, a community in itself that had no religion as part of it. It was mostly around uh, car clubs, and so I had that as uh, an intermediary fallback. I'm, I'm still involved in atheist community, but it's it's by no means uh, the entirety of my community. And uh, I think there's a there's a good mental health flag to wave there is don't build a community on a negative because there's something that's essentially unhealthy about that. And again, to mention a name that's already been mentioned before, Dave over at the Graceful Atheist, that's one thing that he champions uh, quite enthusiastically is is positive community and uh, secular humanism and how we can be good and better to each other because that is how you, you build a community. And Christianity has community nailed. It's got a a, a leg up and a head start over everybody else in terms of how to build a a community and uh, an infrastructure of, of, of help and assistance and, uh, and friendship, you know, and uh, those who, who exit that environment are quite often lost in where they go to for that kind of thing. So I think I recommend LARPing.
2: (laughs) That was so well played. That was was really well done. Kilts Um, not mandatory. Oh, yeah. Oh, something's mandatory. I've seen some of those LARPers, man. You just, you've got to wear something. I don't care what you put on under your kilt, but you've got to put something on. Okay, so um, I do want to talk about the mental health issues around uh, forming community out of a lack of belief in something, and I'd also like to talk about the potential mental health issues that go along with being in some Christian denominations. So some of the listeners know that, uh, that I'm a call agent for a nonprofit called Recovering from Religion. And we run the Secular Hotline Project, and the entire Secular Hotline Project is devoted to uh, having people that are willing to just sit and constructively listen and provide feedback and resources for those people who have uh, suffered substantial harm or perceived harm from religion, and so it is—it is the case that atheism can be unhealthy. It's also the case that Christianity can be harmful, and so I want to be—I want to be a little circumspect about suggesting uh, or even implying. That Christianity has a has a corner market on uh, on good mental hygiene because uh, there are things that are good mental hygiene that don't have to come from uh, Christianity. So we've talked about uh, uh, strong social connections, uh, sense of well being, sense of belonging, all of that kind of thing. And so I'm just wondering whether your research turned up substantial harm or
1: perceived harm as a reason for leaving Christianity. So there's two things I'd like to talk about in reference to that. Uh, Mm -hmm. The first is that there is a spectrum between, say, mainline religion and cult that, you know, focuses on things like, well, behavior control, for instance, Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, your views on uh, certainty. And there's several things that I outlined in the article that kind of play into that and you tend to see deconversions happening more as you get towards the cult end uh, of the spectrum. Uh, and so, you know, I, I, I hear on, when I listen to deconversion uh, profiles, especially shows that are specifically focused on that, that they don't make much of a distinction between say a mainline Christianity and a cult. They'll have people in from both and they'll just more or less refer to both as Christianity. And I think they're, Ought to be some distinction within the pe- spectrum because I think at a certain point something ceases to be Christianity when it focuses around a single spiritual leader as you know and, and starts bringing in new age books and uh, decreases the uh, use of a particular scripture or something like that but you know that's a conversation to have elsewhere well so I there's yeah,
2: oh man we could go a whole nother show on this I will say that as a hotline agent, what I see, and so this this cannot possibly be representative of anything other than my own experience as a hotline agent. There's no systematic research here. It's just whoever happens to call. But we don't only get calls from people in cults. What we, what we generally get is more the call from someone who's been injured by another. And very often that's a uh, uh, a Sunday school teacher or somebody highly placed in the church or something like that. Mm-hmm. We, get, we get more of those calls than we—well, I have taken more of those calls than I have taken calls from uh, people leaving a, a cult in the sense that the denomination itself was actually— a cult, right? So it isolated its members. It uh, perceived that their members are the only ones going to heaven. They have peripheral doctrine that they uh, that they promoted uh, promoted to central importance. All of those things that we that we see in in religious cults, and they don't have to be Christian, right? This this right. is a sort of cult behavior all over the world. And so none of that is uh, is important except that I was just wondering how much of the personal harm bit. Uh, you saw in your research. So just.
1: Don't misunderstand me to say that people only deconvert from cults. What I'm trying to sure. say is that sure. as they approach the side of the spectrum, uh, which, you know, let's say that the end of the spectrum is a dot that represents cults in the most pure form. You mm-hmm. know, as they approach that side of the spectrum, they haven't reached it yet, but they're getting close in terms of the features uh, of that particular church. Uh, you know, the probability of deconversion increases. Um, Yeah, I think that's right.
2: And I would say that would match um, with what I hear on calls. So the trouble is that there's probably some Venn diagram overlap um, with these sorts of incredibly conservative tendencies and any sort of enlightenment beyond a person's uh, religious affiliation. And, and so, okay. Yeah, I, I agree that I, uh, as you move right, we get more callers from, you know, the, the further right you go, the more instances of, of callers from uh, from that region on the continuum we would get.
1: So in terms of the abuse by individuals what you'll find is that in any situation where you set up a position where an individual has the opportunity to have power over another individual, people are attracted to that position that would take advantage of it for personal gain. So, you know, I mentioned that at some point I worked with abused children and one of the main features of child abuse is grooming. So you, uh, you, you take a child and you, begin to befriend the child and you begin to place the child in a position where they're dependent on you and they trust you and, and various things like that. And as you approach the point of abuse, you increase that dependency and that trust to a point where the child almost is, you know, open to the abuse that you put upon them. So, you know, whenever there's a power vacuum where people have the one-on-one possibility of abusing, abusers are attracted to that position. Does that in, in uh, indict the system itself? Well, to a degree it might, you know, if the system is creating positions that attract that kind of person, you know, they would necessarily have to reconsider the types of positions and the monitoring that those positions involve. Now you'll see things like uh, some of the uh, most successful business people also tend to be narcissistic and possibly even uh, psychotic uh, just because that kind of person is attracted to that position. So, you know, I mean, does it indict the system? It really depends on, you know, how the system is laid out and how conscious they are of the types of positions they're creating.
2: Sure. How much does the, does the system defend, um, past bad acts versus, uh, being open to change. I'll just not, uh, I'll just not speak any specific denomination into existence. <laughs> just,
1: just, sure. Just sort of. Now, there's sort another of... point I'd like to make as well. Mm, please. Okay. So when you do a phenomenological study and the nature of phenomenological study is you take a testimony and then you try to extract from that testimony the closest to the true nature of what happened as possible, in the case of, you know, I, I study conversion as well. And what you have in a conversion uh, is the creation of a conversion narrative. So this is where a person looks back over their life and they see the hand of providence and God moving them closer to the point where they, you know, join the church and they're saved and they have this close relationship with God and everything in their life has moved up to that point, you know. And so they create this new narrative looking back upon their life from their new perspective and the same thing happens in the cases of deconversion you know there is a narrative that's formed that more or less rewrites the story of their life up to that point and there's a question of you know the reality of what actually happened versus the way in which they've moved the narrative as a result of the deconversion so have you ever seen the movie the usual suspects
0: love that movie
1: okay it's been a while but yes All right. So there's a point in the, you know, the entire movie is this guy who's narrating what happened in a particular crime situation. And he tells this whole story to a police officer who's standing there listening to the story. And then he finishes his story and walks off. And the police officer starts considering the story, looking around the room and realizes that the entire story was a fabrication. And then he starts looking along and you, the, the watcher, realize that you were watching a completely different movie than what you thought you were watching. And the whole thing comes out in this sort of moment of inspiration. It's very well done in the movie. And this is sort of what happens when one converts or deconverts. Suddenly they look back on their life and it's a completely different story than they thought it was. And so what you have with the converts is that they tend to look back across their, um, their religious life you know in, in in the in media res, if you will uh they were having a very spiritual moment they were having an experience where the spirit of god is talking to them or something like that and then they look back upon that moment and they have to reinterpret it through their current mindset and they realize that they were living a completely different story than what they thought they were living at the time and suddenly it's not a uh, story about inspiration or you know learning a new Tact on life, it's a story about deception. It's a story about, sure. you know, suddenly Christians don't become people who are mistaken. They become liars and deceivers. And, you know, to a extent, this is an exaggeration of what happened based on their current outlook and what's happened to them. So it's difficult as a researcher to extract how much of that reflects exactly what happened. And how much of that is a rewriting of the story because of a shift in perspective?
0: Yeah, that's uh, good. And that that leads to one of the, the points, I think, that uh, I wanted to respond to because um, you were saying it earlier about a lot of the, or certainly the majority of the stories that you're talking about are people who are at what can best be described at the extreme end or fundamentalist end or literalist end, whatever, whatever, however you want to describe it, but that far end of Christianity. And as they realised that some of the things that they were holding either were wrong or they didn't work in the society in which they were in, so they stepped away from those and then they carried on walking and the next thing they knew they, they'd left. And I think I can kind of talk to that kind of experience because I think those kind of people tend to be, more outspoken about their exit from Christianity, because I'm, I'm one of them, because they see something that they don't just no longer accept, they actually have left it behind because they think it's wrong. Um, and for me personally, being taught young earth creationism as a child, I I absolutely object to that not only is it scientifically uh, untenable i don't think it helps christianity either so i'm very much against against that kind of thing i was wronged and i actually view it that way i was wronged by having that kind of education as a child so i want to so i speak out partly because i don't want to see that happening to other children so i i kind of get that and i think that is probably a good explanation as to why you see so many people from from that field of Christianity, because the people who have exited that recognise there's something wrong with that and they want to oppose that because they, they don't want other people to suffer the same way. Does that make sense? Yes, it does. I think the other thing that I want to mention, there were two big things that uh, struck me when, when reading this. Um, one of them was I didn't see any mention of what is termed um religious trauma is that a phrase you've come across and did that feature in any of the the stories that you've got and was there a reason why that specific experience uh, wasn't mentioned
1: well religious trauma syndrome as i understand it is a post-religious system because obviously up to the point of deconversion you, know, you might gradually be uh, experiencing trauma which comes to a head at the point you deconvert, and then thereafter is when you would go into counseling and you would uh, you know, face results of whatever trauma you per, uh, accrued over that period. My research was more interested in what happens up to the point of deconversion. You know, I was trying to develop a model of the topology of a deconversion, So the trauma that's associated with that is a thing that happens after, or at least comes to light after the deconversion occurs. And so it's, yes, it's something that I've encountered. I've heard it talked about, but I haven't researched it enough to speak to it. You know, I intend to eventually read some of the material and look into it, but it's not something I can speak to based on the research I've done.
0: Okay, thanks for that that answer. And I, I won't pretend to be anywhere near enough Uh, knowledgeable about religious trauma to to respond to that specifically so dear listeners if there's a listener who feels that they have the the knowledge on religious trauma to to respond to that specific point uh, please send us feedback to the usual email address reasonpress at gmail.com and actually you know there are
1: some things i can say about that and you know because i've heard enough about it to it's very interesting to me that, in a lot of cases where I hear about this, one of the things they frequently talk about is this idea that you know you have to fall back on your belief in God to make any kind of decisions, so there's this idea that you have to pray about decisions that you're making, and it's the kind of this constant cycle of looking to God for strength and wisdom and prayer and so forth and so you know, after the deconversion you have to kind of talk yourself out of all this programming that you've received, you know, and now I don't have to pray, but then again, that is not there to fall back upon. You know, I have to reprogram myself. Another feature, which really took me a long time to figure out because it was, it was unique and it was difficult to comprehend what was going on was this shift from the certainty that comes from religion to the uncertainty that you have as an irreligious person. So, you know, I mean, as a person who doesn't believe in a God and a purpose and, and, you know, what have you, that would be taught by a religious community, you have to be comfortable with saying, I don't know a lot. You have to be able to put things mm. and notions on the back burner for further consideration or, or just admit that there are certain things you can't speak to because you just don't know. You don't have enough information versus within a religious environment. There is an expectation to be certain. You're certain about the truth of the Bible. You're certain about the veracity of the speaker. You're certain about uh, your salvation. You're certain about this, that, and the other. And uncertainty is looked upon with some kind of suspicion or, you know, as if it's uh, it's a lack of faith, right? So, um, you know, it, it took me a while to get my head around that because it's a perspective that I've never had. And I had to really think about it to and listen to a lot of the testimonies to get there. But this, you know, this sudden being cast from a, a position of complete certainty to a position of complete doubt. The thing that brought this out to me was a study I was reading about fundamentalism and deconversion. And, you know, they had their own definition of fundamentalism, but what was interesting to me was that they put nihilism and fundamentalism on two ends of a spectrum, wherein fundamentalism was complete certainty about everything that you believed, and nihilism was complete uncertainty. And the thing is, if a fundamentalist who has this idea of complete certainty takes a step in the direction of nihilism, they almost immediately take a step into nihilism because they've taken, you know, they are no longer certain. If, you don't, if you're not certain about anything, you're not certain, right? Um, so, you know, they're taking a step in the direction of uncertainty and they're, you know, at risk of falling into the abyss of nihilism. And, you know, when you come from that perspective... When that is your only perspective, it's difficult to get into a mindset where you're okay with being uncertain. You're okay with saying I don't know.
0: And again, that's something that uh, that I identify with to a to a certain extent. And yeah, it uh, can be quite quite nervy to to walk that road, walking away from from something which you held with i wouldn 't necessarily say absolute certainty, but certainly a very high degree of certainty and, and yeah confident that was exactly the word I was about to say and you 're you're walking away from that and to a certain extent you're walking away from it unwillingly in fact, for me, for a great deal of that walk, it was an unwilling walk but i I had no choice but to make it, and it's it's a very unsettling experience and for some people it lasts uh, quite a long time and for some people they get through it quite quickly but the the whole process is is quite unsettling and you don't know what to do with it you don't know who you can trust to to talk to about it you don't know what the consequences are going to be for your for your social life and in some cases uh, for your intimate life and you know the the whole thing comes with a whole host of baggage which is really difficult to carry So, yeah, it's and it's also the experience is also different for for different people. You know, there's there's broad strokes which are the same and different people identify with. But, you know, each each walk is individual. The other thing that jumped out uh, at me, which uh, I wanted to talk about from from your report, is the ridiculously high proportion of people who came to faith as young people or children who were brought up uh, in in christianity or if i dare say the word indoctrinated into christianity there's a very high percentage of that kind of person in in those who then go to exit as an adult and um, and i fit one of your surprise group i did it in my 30s uh no sorry let me just yep yeah, yeah i did it in my th- late 30s uh when it, was, when it happened to me. So I was well out of what would be my college years. Um, so, but when anyway, you do you converted or when you deconverted? When I deconverted. Oh, okay. Yeah, I, I converted as a child. I was indoctrinated as uh, in the missionary environment, uh, as I mentioned earlier. So do you have any thoughts on to why it's, there's such a high proportion of people who came into Christianity as a child?
1: Well, obviously, that's uh, one of the setting conditions, is one of the most persistent setting conditions. I believe in my studies... The oldest convert I had was about 12 years old, and he immediately started preaching uh, thereafter. Um, so yeah, I mean, um, this is an interesting feature, and I would say it's probably one of the uh, setting conditions that is predictive of deconversion is what would essentially be a lack of conversion. Now, one of the things that, you find in these studies is when somebody is talking about their deconversion experience, they are very interested in making certain that that those who are listening to them are sure that they were a real Christian. Because of course, when you deconvert, you're familiar with the idea that Christians are going to come along and say, well, you were never a real Christian to begin with, or, you know, you were never saved and you were just, you know, kind of fell away because you weren't, you know, that kind of thing. Uh, and so when I,
2: all the time, <laughs>
1: all right? And as a researcher, I, I can't speak to that. So, you know, I get the question quite often and I, you know, I tell you them what I just told you, I have no access to that kind of information as a researcher. I can only speak to the behaviors and what is obvious to me. Um, so at any rate, uh, having said that, um, so when a person tells their deconversion story, frequently they are, they tell the parts of their biography that uh, assure the reader or listener that they were in fact uh, sincere in their Christianity. Um, And so, you know, they'll break it down and say the kinds of things that they believed, the kinds of religious experiences that they had, and the kinds of religious things that they did, like possibly evangelism. You know, they were very successful and bringing people to Christ or whatnot. Um, but then there's this idea that they are all early adopters. They come to Christ. I, when, when it comes to conversion and conversion theory, there are two t- types of conversion that we speak of. One is a, um, it's a crisis conversion. And the word crisis in there does not mean that they were having a terrible time suddenly. It just means that it was a sudden conversion. So, you know, they saw the light, so to speak, and, uh, you know, they fell on their knees and they prayed and they became a Christian, kind of thing. Um, And then the other type of conversion is a process conversion, which is similar to the model I've been laying out for deconversion. It has a beginning point, a process, and then an end point. Um, Now, the thing that you see with deconverts, at least the ones that I've studied, is that they go? Th- they tend to go through neither of those conversion experiences. They can't go through a process of conversion because they're converted practically from the womb. You know, they're part of that community. Uh, conversion, in technical sense, is the movement from one worldview or mindset to another. You convert, right? You you move from something to something else. But if you're born into a religion and you're Religious by default, because you're a child and that's your community, uh, you don't convert from anything else. You don't move from one thing to another. You are the thing. And so the deconversion really is the process of moving from one thing to another. You know, you have a default worldview by virtue of your upbringing, and then you move out of that default worldview. In fact, there is a um, a debate in conversion uh, studies that says that a deconversion is essentially the same thing as a a conversion. I'm not in that school, but that's one school of thought. So, yeah, that is interesting to me because, I I mean, that would tend to support the notion that the person was never converted to begin with. uh, And that's not a notion that I follow because it seems condescending and um, it doesn't take into account the person's uh, exit money, if you will. (laughs) So yeah, I don't. I don't propose that people are not Christians that deconvert, but it is uh, very few, if any, that I've looked at have gone through one of the two conversion models.
0: Uh, thank you for for confirming that. It is. It's a source of constant constant frustration that the the most common uh, line that is uh, is uh, is aimed at me when I. When i say i'm a deconvert is oh, you were never a a true believer in the first place and i see it constantly and sometimes i'm okay with it i can just deal with it sometimes it pushes a button and I, i get quite cross about it and um and sometimes i get quite cross about it on behalf of others you know whenever the unbelievable podcast for example features somebody who used to believe on it i know that as soon as I go on to the, the comment section under the posting, I'm going to see a large number of comments saying you're oh, clearly never a, a true believer in the in the first place. And it, yeah, it it's a it's a peeve of mine. It's it's I don't have many buttons left, but <laughs> that's one of them. And I I suspect I'll never get rid of that button because it's just so pervasive. And um, but to go to go to the the stats about the the large number of of people who came into Christianity as youngsters and then then left as adults, I'm not at all surprised by that statistic. It really isn't a surprise for me by me at all. I think that's very very easily explainable and probably should be expected and predicted uh, from from the kind of study that you're doing. And the way I uh, explain it is that people who make a who convert as adults are going to do a much more uh, conscientious conversion, and they're going to convert to a Christianity that they're pre- prepared to hold as an adult. And I think the chance of those people then walking away again afterwards—I'm I'm sure some have—but I'm also pretty sure that the chance of those people walking away from Christianity is significantly lower. Those who, who do it as a child and then are faced into it, you know, and. It was like it for me, and I suspect it's like it for everybody who went into Christianity as a child, and if not everybody, certainly a very high percentage, is the Christianity that they hold to probably changes slightly as they get older anyway. The Christianity that I held on to as a teenager and as a 20-something wasn't the same Christianity that I held on to as a preteen, and the Christianity I held on to in my 30s wasn't the same kind of Christianity that I held on to in my 20s. So it, the whole of my Christianity was actually a stepping to the left before I even questioned the Christianity. And then when I questioned it, I, I finished it finished it off. And I suspect that if I'd been one of those people who'd been brought up in a, in a non-religious household, I may well never have converted to Christianity in the first place if I'd encountered it as an adult. But I obviously can't say that with absolute certainty, but mm-hmm. that is my suspicion of myself. So... I'm um, I'm not at all surprised by by this stat coming out from the data. I I think it should actually be easily predictable. Um I'm tempted to be very cheeky and say it should be used as evidence that Christian churches should all abolish their their Sunday schools and their their child groups uh, forthwith to to stop people doing this as an adult but that would just be me using my platform to be cheeky. I don't think it. <laughs> um Well
1: you're not the only one. <laughs> okay, well, that's It's very better. common. Um, if I may speak to con- conversion for just a moment, um, the con- there are a number of conversion models, but one of the things that is consistent with conversion models is that they begin with a sort of problem in the person's life. It's uh, it's not unlike the stressors, except you know the the person is having some kind of problem for which they need a solution. And uh, they enter a seeker stage. You know, I mean, eventually the religion is seen as the solution to their problem. And so they go into the next step of the uh, conversion process uh, and eventually end up as a religious person. Um, now, it's possible in some point that that same person could end up uh, moving to a different denomination or converting to a different religion because they see the conversion experience itself as a problem, a solution to a problem. This is something they associate with solving problems. And so they continue to convert or or be a religious seeker. Um, But frequently, the person just remains in the religion that they converted to because they've seen it as a resolution to whatever problem that they're encountering at that time versus a a deconvert who never entered religion as a solution to a problem. That's just the waters that they've been swimming in their entire life. And then they encounter a problem, and religion is the cause of that problem. Uh, And so they move away from religion. Um, The thing about moving to atheism is that atheism qua atheism is not attractive. It's religion that is unattractive. It's what causes them to deconvert, is running away from religion, not running toward something else. Yep,
0: I hadn't reached that conclusion but now that you've uh, voiced it, yeah, I'm I'm on board with that as a, an explanation. I think that works. Um, I was I was trying to work out how I saw Christianity as a problem. I, I, I'm I'm trying to work that out in my head. I certainly saw it as something that was unattractive, so I needed to leave. I'm. I I, th- I think for me it was it was an evidence based doubt. I don't know if I would necessarily describe that as a problem. I guess it's a problem in, in the such that as I could no longer use it to explain what I understood scientifically. But, yeah, it you know, might have
1: been the cognitive dissonance that associated with that that became uncomfortable remaining in the religion.
0: Yep, that works. That yeah, that works. It seems to me
2: that there are some people that do run to atheism. Um, for positive reasons, or at least run to humanism for positive reasons, which often carries with it uh, hand in hand, the idea of atheism and, uh, and, and, and are running away from Christianity simultaneously. And you mentioned one of them uh, in, in one of the lists earlier, and that is how the church treats um, LGBTQ uh, community mm-hmm. members. And, and so, if those kinds of social concerns are uh, important to the individual, it's very possible to run away from the church and and uh, not just run into, you know, or to be running toward something, right? To be affirming um, that the church is doing something wrong and not just be running away from it, but to be running toward something that is substantially better
1: in that person's view. Mm-hmm. So yeah. I, I do see that with humanism because it's a positive um, mindset. It, it makes propositions right. about the nature of uh, morality and humanity and so forth versus, you know, pure atheism, which is just a lack of belief, which isn't even a thing, really.
2: Um that's another show. <laughs> when, I say,
0: when I say it I'm isn't a I'm just looking at the I time slot here and go, let's not yeah. go there, please.
1: <laughs> no, when I say it isn't a thing, I mean, it's, it's not a standard or an objective or, you know, there's no scripture or, or Ten Commandments. There's no law that, uh, can, that defines a lack of belief. It's just a mm. state of being.
2: Um, that's another show. <laughs> <laughs> maybe i'm mistaken
1: well i've never seen atheism uh, as a positive argument for the nature of reality
0: well yeah, I, that, I, okay that's but, why i would say it doesn't it's, it doesn't do that no yeah, that's quite right but i
1: do think what
2: you do see uh is positive argument for evidence not equaling the claim and so in that sense um Atheism, when it is being argued for uh, from an empirical perspective, it is a it is a positive claim Mm -hmm. about the evidence not equaling the claim of Christianity. And so in that sense, I think there's some room for us to to have a conversation, at least, because I think um, at least that's the atheism that I support. And so it's uh, it's
1: an epistemology you know, that's at least it's the defense of an epistemology, which is fine. Yeah. You know, but um, it doesn't make a positive argument for values or anything like that. It makes an argument for a standard by which we discover those things,
2: which is fine. Oh, that's absolutely true. Yeah. So it is not, uh, it is not it As compared to
1: humanism, which is a right. standard set of values, yeah. which yeah, is that's the right. distinction I was making.
2: No, that's fair.
0: That's yeah. Fair. And, and, and I, I was just going to say, I, I endorse that, you know. I'm humanist because I believe in in this, that, and the other. I, I'm atheist because it's a it's a tick box value that has resulted from the rest of my worldview.
2: Yeah. So, so you're absolutely right in that. If you affirm atheism uh, in in either its weak form or its strong form, all of your work to assess values is still ahead of you.
1: So, mm-hmm.
2: yeah, we're we're in lockstep there.
1: That's what I was saying.
2: Fair enough. So uh, I just wanted to pick a fight at the end for fun. (laughs)
1: Bring it.
2: (laughs) See, and I promise the listeners that one day we will find a topic that will make you cross enough to raise your voice.
1: (laughs) I apologize. I could probably go there. <laughs> <laughs> we, we will eventually.
2: We will eventually know what it means for someone British to be cross. We
0: will <laughs> make a cup of tea in the wrong way. That is how you make a British person cross. <laughs> oh,
2: so uh, so Instagram says, man. The whole yeah, or or serve
0: beer or serve beer too cold. That's um uh, another one. Um, anyway, bef- before this before this sinks into the quad quagmire of um whatever then so (laughs) i i feel we're 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 losing him already i i think joe there's one question i'd I'd like to ask you having gone through all of this what should the caring christian do in response to somebody who is a friend uh, a loved one somebody that they care about who has gone down this road or has passed the point of no return. What's, what's the best way for, for the Christian to respond to this, to affirm the, to affirm to, to the lever, you know, that they're still a valued human being.
1: So the problem with a person going from Christian to non-Christian is that, uh, the loss of community. And, you know, I mean, if the Christian community abandons that person, uh, by, virtue of them no longer believing the same things that they do, uh, then that's the fault of the Christian community. Now I've equally heard about people who have deconverted who are no longer comfortable around Christians because of the elephant in the room. And so, you know, it's a, it's a problem that goes both ways, but, you know, I, I would advise a Christian to be respectful, to listen to the person as if they were another adult holding a, another opinion Um You know, it is possible to disagree without being disagreeable and to remain a friend with that person and supportive of that person in all ways that don't, you know, directly relate to the disagreement uh, between their ideologies, which is possible to do. Um, So if you are able to remain a friend to this person who is going through a stressful situation and to support them in their view, which is possible, it's possible to disagree and be adults about it. Uh, then you have done them a great service because otherwise they're on their own. They're all alone. And to please, please do not focus on bringing them back. Let them be who they are. Um, You know, I mean, the pressure is placed upon a Christian to reconvert them. And the Christian feels guilty or somehow responsible if they don't. If Mm. If this person remains an atheist for the rest of their life, the Christian sees it as a failure upon their shoulders. But it isn't and this person is responsible for their own decisions. You be the friend that you have been to this person. Do not change that relationship because you now disagree about something.
2: I wanna come alongside that because there's a a current in the atheist movement to see religion uh, and specifically Christianity as a mental illness. And if you collect enough atheists uh, in a room somebody will say it out loud. And so I want to, uh, to say to our more strident listeners, if you are that kind of atheist, you haven't done your homework either. Uh, religion doesn't equal mental illness. It only means that the person across from you disagrees with you, uh, potentially about ontology and epistemology, And how you reach those decisions uh, about how you treat people in your life, Uh, those will differ. But the things that you do agree on are probably substantially more important. And the things that you will likely agree on is not harming each other, not cheating each other, not abusing each other about how to conduct society so there is ground for substantial agreement and we can probably lose the tone and rhetoric on both sides and be better off.
0: Absolutely. Fully agree. Yeah. And I'll put my hand up. I've been guilty of uh, unhelpful comments towards uh, Christian friends and people who, who aren't friends, but I've still said uh, unwelcome and uh, unhelpful for things. So, yeah we can we can all, all learn in that, and I want to completely endorse the response you gave to that question, Joel. Thank you for that. It was really good to hear it. Well, I appreciate you saying so uh, Matthew closing um I have n- nothing else to ask or say about the study. do you
2: I don't, but Joel, I would like to uh first ask. Uh, before, well, (laughs) maybe not first because we're all the way down to the last, but I would like to give you an opportunity to uh, tell the listeners where they can find you because uh, that's important. You've said some interesting things. The listeners ought to be able to follow you. And uh, so how do they get in touch?
1: So I would recommend following the Facebook page that I have for my research, which is uh, titled Switching Sides. And it's titled that because I I study both conversion and deconversion. Um, and I post the results of my uh, research on there practically several times a day. <laughs> um, mm. And then uh, my Twitter feed is at sideswitching, or you can uh, visit my webpage, which is uh, Joelfurchas.com
2: And for the listeners, because, uh, you know, some of them are from the South like me and they can't spell, um, give us the vanity domain again, spell it for us.
1: Okay. Uh, JoelFurches.com is J-O-E-L, and then Furches is spelled F as in Foxtrot, U-R, C as in Charlie, H-E-S. Perfect.
0: Perfect. And we'll try to include links to all those in our show notes as well, anyway.
2: Joel, uh, speaking for myself, it's been a pleasure. I really have enjoyed the the conversation, the uh, attention to detail in your writing, and uh, I hope that you'll consider coming back on with us um, when your project is is completed. I guess this is
1: going to become a book, right? Well, one would hope, but I don't have a interested publisher just yet. Honestly, my goal would be to have it published as an academic study. You know, I have done academic things. I've taken uh, sample sizes. I've Pulled out trends, and I've done research into you know other academic uh, research that's been done in the field, so I would hope to develop it as a paper, but as a popular work would be welcome as well so yes, I would be happy to come back on and talk about my uh research. It's constantly going, so I'm learning new things all the time and now that you've recommended a resource where I can hear new deconversion stories, I can now process those into the research I've already done to get a
0: better bigger sample size. Excellent. Well, I, I, yeah, I hope for that. And um, actually, sorry to talk over you, Andrew. I've just remembered a, a, a question that I, I think I mentioned or hinted at here in email when we're, we're touching base. I think I mentioned something about I'd like to see if there's any predictive qualities on, on that. Is what you've done mature enough that you'd be able to do a test case predictor on... I was going to say individuals, that's putting too much of a pressure on it, but a certain type of individual or maybe even an individual that they may deconvert. And then is that in a piece of paper in an envelope somewhere so you can then pull it out in a few years' time and go, aha.
1: (laughs) Well, I mean, in order to predict an individual's deconversion, I would need to know about their background and uh, where they stand uh, currently. I actually have my eye on a friend of mine or an acquaintance, I suppose, who came out of a restrictive homeschool environment, uh, raised in the church, and then she transitioned into college. And now she's been moving, doing the leftward drift uh, that I've talked about. And I wouldn't be very surprised if she ended up deconverting, in which case, you know, she's a good candidate for deconversion based on my study. Uh, But that's the only person I have. And of course, you'd have to grab a person early in the process and see see the path they're taking in order to do that uh, prediction, which would be difficult to do. You'd have to catch them closer to the end of the process.
0: Yes, I get that, and I I appreciate there's a there's a cheekiness in that that question. But it would be if um, it's all well and good doing a retrospective study, but if you can show it in in real time, that, that adds weight and validity to to what you've gone and it enables you to to fine tune some processes. So thank you for entertaining the question. Um, <laughs> it's yeah, it's it's one of those things. One one thing that for the for the listeners, so uh, one thing that Andrew and I like to do to some of our guests is ask them if they have a favorite Bible character and to uh, and just tell us who that character is.
1: Okay, I I think you know it's it's a hard question to answer, but I think probably it would be Job. Mm. Okay, All would right.
0: you like to expand on that? I'm curious. Sure. So Job is a
1: first-rate philosopher. Um, and the, the thing about the book of Job is people like read the beginning and read the end. And that's about all they read of the book. There's a significant chunk of material in between the beginning and the end. And, uh, there's many interesting, uh, features of that material. Uh, I think the book of Job probably asks some of the most important questions in the whole of scripture. And it's widely considered to be possibly the earliest work, uh, that was authored within the collection of scripture in the Bible. And one of the interesting features of Job is, you know, I mean, the, the Middle Eastern religions like Hinduism go back uh, centuries to possibly, well, millennia to possibly some of the oldest religions out there. And Job almost seems like a argument against uh, karma specifically, because the argument that his friends are making in that book is a very karmic argument that bad deeds huh. are punished and good deeds are rewarded And he's only suffering because he did something bad, which is a very Eastern outlook. Uh, And of course, he's making an argument against that, that it's possible to suffer and also not have done anything bad. And then that raises the question of what about justice? And that's a point that's reviewed extremely in there. So Job is a first rate philosopher. Even if you don't believe a thing in the Bible, it's, it's a very interesting bit of philosophy to read.
2: Job is interesting philosophy. I uh, I love the book and it has the coolest description uh, of Leviathan. <laughs> it's you know, maybe the only description in the book. I was going to say, so, is there another? No, I, I think it is the only one. And, but dude, it's super, uh, it's super cool, right? I think that's uh, chapter 39 or 40, if I remember
1: correctly. I couldn't tell you.
2: Yeah, it's all right. Look, Job is, uh, Job is an interesting read. Um, and, Not only do you have that uh, that karmic discussion, but there's the there's the whole question of the interaction of of good and evil behind the scenes. Mm -hmm. And uh, and it's it's a great book. It is. Um, Um, Matthew, is there is there anything else? Are we uh, are we going to invite people to uh, reach out to us at Reason? uh, Yeah, you um, do that. You do that. (laughs) So um, thank you for listening to this episode of Still Unbelievable. If you have questions for us, we encourage you to reach out to us at reasonpress at gmail.com or in the show notes, you can click on the link and leave us a voicemail message. And please do reach out to Joel if you have questions. We're looking forward to having him uh, back on the show in the not distant future. And uh, thank you for listening to this episode of Still Unbelievable. We'll catch you next time.
0: Cheers. Thanks, Joel.
1: No problem. Outdoor music now. Yeah, yeah.
0: You have been listening to a podcast by Reason Press. To get in touch, email reasonpress at gmail.com or see our website, reasonpress.net, where you'll also find our book, Still Unbelievable. We welcome more feedback and you might even end up on an episode. Our theme music was written for us by Holly. You can hear more of her music at soundcloud.com slash bishop. You can support us by buying some of Holly's music and telling her we sent you.